everyone, my name is Katarzyna Plechner and I am the Vice President of the Trinity College Dublin Neuroscience Society. Today's topic is split into two episodes. We will first discuss some questions about PhDs and how to start looking for a program. And in the second episode, we chat about what to do during your PhD, when to start looking for postdocs, and how to decide whether to stay in academia or not. To answer these questions, I am joined by amazing guests, Dr. Francesca Sibilia, who's currently a postdoc in University of Southern California, Michael Connickton, who's doing his PhD in the Whelan Lab at Trinity College, and Javesh Ramdani, the president of the society and the PhD candidate at Imaging Mind Architecture Lab. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. I really appreciate it. So to start off, I want to ask, how did you choose your area of research and what are you currently working on? I started um, doing research in general because I was fascinated by how um, Alzheimer's disease, you know, was changing the brain. And so I, w- I was definitely interested to uh, study more about it. Uh, during my PhD, uh, not only I did um, I did work on Alzheimer's disease and uh, normal aging, but I also then switched to um, stress. Okay, I also switched to stress in adolescence, and that was also fascinating because they gave me like a broader spectrum of you know like a broader idea of how the brain changes since like we are children. So, and especially that that also affects how we age, you know, like especially our brain. So, um, I think it just came, uh, natural, you know, like during your PhD or when you do research, you do develop other research interests. And so, um, I was actually lucky that I was able to work on different projects and, you know, like something that. I thought I wouldn't never like eventually like I really got passionate about. So um, I think that is also great um, that, you know, like we also have the chance to work on different projects. Currently now I'm working on uh, TBI, so train brain injury in um, older people. And also like I would probably look also across the lifespan. So that is great because like he just... Uh, put together everything that I, that I learned during my PhD. How are you? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, how are you? My name is Michael. I started my research uh, interest really when I was an undergrad in psychology. So I came from a psychology background, which focused on kind of behaviorism psychology, which I found interesting, but I just kept asking questions why. And when you just keep asking questions, why you end up in uh, neuroscience? So did a master's in clinical neuroscience, got exposed to neuroimaging. From there, got exposed to diffusion-based, which is kind of white matter connectivity imaging. And uh, yeah, when I was, what kind of drew me to my PhD was more so the team that I'm working with. It's a good team for structural connectivity. And uh, yeah, just asking the question why when it comes to behavior really kind of drove me to where I am now? Um, I think in my case, it was a bit different. Um, so I started with a background in computer science. And then uh, I went on to do um, a postgrad degree in AI. So, but one thing was I was always interested in the human brain. And I wanted to connect computer science and um, neuroscience together. 
So I was looking to do um, at a second master's degree, and that's when I found out that there was a master's in in uh, neuroimaging at uh, King's. Um, so when I was uh, doing that master's degree, I loved it because it's an interdisciplinary world where you would need your quantitative skills, you would need your anatomy skills, you would need uh, knowledge in uh, neuroscience. So after my, my master's degree, I went on to do an RA in Nottingham. And that was like my first uh, research experience um, working with Alzheimer uh, patients and doing some uh, neuroimaging data analysis. Um, but, you know, when I was reading the literature, I, I found out that there are a lot of diseases that happen at the early stage of life. So I was more interested then to start my PhD looking at the neurodevelopmental aspect. Um, so that's how I decided to do my PhD in it. And now I, um, I work with uh, functional MRI uh, data. So I looked at um, resting state data or, or movie watching data from, um, from children and adolescents and to look at changes in their brain uh, function um, and how this change can... So, yeah, so all of you have quite... Uh, well, you're all more towards the quantitative side of neuroscience, which I think is uh, very interesting. Definitely something that I have found... I'm a bit interested since literally starting my classes again on Monday and uh, having new modules and actually learning a bit about quantitative neuroscience for the first time. Uh, which brings me to the next question, which is what advice would you give to someone who's really struggling to narrow down their area of interest to pursue a PhD in? Because there's a lot and neuroscience is, as you all know, incredibly broad. So what advice would you give to someone who just wants too many things <laughs> um i think that's that's a very good question um it's not as easy as it sounds like um because of course we are interested in so many things but you can only do your phd in in one research theme um i think like the more you are exposed to the literature the more you would be drawn towards a specific topic um, like I mentioned before, I'm interested in neurodevelopmental uh, disorders. So usually um, my first project uh, was working with children and uh, adolescents. But my second project is kind of uh, uh, going towards depression, you know, um, depression adolescents, which is a bit rare to study because, you know, you don't, often get that many participants, especially because they are quite young. Uh, but the more I read about the literature, the more I found out what I wanted to do. Um, and also when you do a PhD, this is, it does not necessarily mean that you will always work um, on one certain disorder. Um, you can always have different side projects and you can always explore different things that that uh, you wish to do. Um, so I'm doing a methods-based PhD. So like I'm applying different methods in different disorders 
Um, so now, like I said, depression, but my next project will, will be on autism. Um, so I'm, I'm getting exposed to, to different things uh, into my PhD, but also using uh, fMRI. Um, yeah. So I would probably say um, start with, you know, looking for something that you know that you like and that you have passion about. Because, I mean, having that strong starting point will help you then along the journey. Then doesn't mean that, like, you can't change direction or interest or anything. Because, like, as I told you, I switched from old people to adolescents. So it was kind of like a big jump. But um, eventually, I think that is also the journey of a PhD of discovering more about what you like in research, but also, like, what you like about, you know, would you like, you know, as a person? So like you actually know more about your own interests and you can get passionate about things as well. So how that happened to me, especially with the second project, I was a bit scared because it was um, a research area that I didn't know anything about. Also methods based. So I was so scared of getting like more into computational neuroscience, but eventually I ended up loving it. So, and that really led me to my postdoc position now. So it's kind of like be open. Um, of course, like, you know, if you know from the beginning that you will never uh, learn coding, but because you don't like computers, so you don't like sitting at a desk for like eight hours, you know, like uh, just go with something else. But um, otherwise, just be open to anything. Start it with something that you know for sure that you love. Uh, yeah, for me, it was um, what helped me was Sometimes I notice with people going for PhD, they they're a bit too specific in what they what they think they want, and you're gonna be flexible once you go into your PhD and even your research career. What helped me a lot was understanding and being passionate about the certain scope that I was gonna investigate in neuroscience. So you can come at it from say a cell a cell level or where I'm working with, like say neuroimaging, a kind of a structural connectivity level, and um, yeah, just become passionate about Pick a PhD that you're passionate about the methods because the topics will follow. Like I previously did research on schizophrenia, then I did on substance use, and now I'm on ADHD. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is uh, being passionate about the methods and how you're asking the question. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, okay, so uh, what what do you think is more important um, finding the right supervisor or finding the right university? Michael, same question. <laughs> I would say a supervisor. I think having a good team of supervisors and having good people of supervisors, it, it makes a massive difference because you're kind of going through, they give you support, they give you guidance. Um, you don't get that from the university. I'm not saying the university isn't important, but I think, yeah, supervisor is the way to go, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, it's the person that you will talk the most, probably during your PhD. So it's key to have a good relationship and especially good mentorship from him or from her. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a big part in your journey during a PhD. Yeah, I mean, I do agree that um, finding the right supervisor is um, is the most important thing because, like Fran was saying, 
this is the person you will meet and interact um, throughout the three, four years of your PhD. And uh, this is the person who will kind of have the final say in your PhD. Um, so yeah, I think finding the right supervisor is very important. Um, so I think that it's, it's quite important to do a bit of background research on the supervisor or the PI, like talk to the members in his or her lab, found out a bit more how how is the style of uh, of supervision because sometimes supervisors like uh, weekly meetings so like my supervisor we have weekly meetings some supervisors like monthly meetings or or somehow for others you might have to chase them uh, so i think if you find the right supervisor your phd journey will go very smooth um, but if you find the if you don't find the right one, then it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Also, speaking of um, obstacles, I know that the situation for international students is more difficult than for uh, European Union students. So, do you have any advice um, for international students that are applying for funding? Well, that's a that's a question which uh, I've always thought about because. I'm not a I'm not an EU candidate, so I'm uh, I'm from Mauritius. Um, so it's actually quite difficult to find a fully funded um, program because our tuition fees are, uh, are quite high compared to the EU fees. Uh, but there are ways. So, for example, every university has uh, has an international funding scheme. So that could be one way of uh, of finding a funding source, and the other way is like every country usually would have a a body which regulates the funding. So maybe that that could be the the second route, and I think the third one might be if you talk to you a supervisor, and the supervisor is willing to fund you, then. Basically, you could work out maybe some scholarship where he covers or she covers the EU rate, and then you and your supervisor can find something else to cover the overheads. Uh, but you have to start in advance; like you have to apply all these things way before the deadline of the PhD program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so definitely, that would take some. Uh thinking before and uh, a lot more preparation. Okay, so, so far I have, you know, I've decided what I want to do my PhD in. Now the application process. Uh, question, how important do you think it is to have research experience prior to starting a PhD? And I think this is a question that's quite relevant right now because with COVID, I know a lot of placements have been canceled. Um, if you want to uh, do some kind of wet lab work, that's quite impossible right now because time has to be allocated for current postdocs and PhD students. So with regards to application, do you, how much of a weight do you think one should assign to, to, um, to that area? Um, it's hard to know. There's, there's, I wouldn't say there's any fixed rule. I, I know I worked as a, I was doing an RA over in New York at Columbia um, University and I loved it but 
if I got offered a PhD before that, I would have taken it. So it's worth doing, but if you don't get it, like the times now, it's hard to lock in a placement. With a PhD, you're kind of starting from scratch from day one when it comes to your basis of learning. So I would recommend it if you could do it because it gives you experience in the reality of research. But if you can't, just roll with the punches and take the chance. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it's kind of like you have to know, again, like I think you have to know pretty much what you kind of are interested in because I think the methods will come along the way. Uh, I mean, as Michael said before, like you have to know, you know, what you actually like also method wise, but the learning process will come, you know, during your PhD. So for example, when I started, I was doing more basic research. So it was all cells, molecules, and, you know, animal models. And then I switched to neuroimaging, which is again, completely another thing. And all the computational skills, I mean, I learned them during my PhD. So you do learn like from day one, as you said. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, oh my gosh, if I don't know anything about this method or this topic, then, you know, I won't go on, I won't apply for that PhD because that will kind of box you in, in, you know, smaller chances to get one. Um, I think uh, in my case, I did do an RA in Nottingham uh, before doing my PhD. Uh, that time when I was applying for a PhD, I couldn't get uh, full funding. So um, my other option was to gain some research experience. Um, so I had the right opportunity, which came, uh, which was in quantitative neuroimaging. And uh, I think for me, it worked well because I gained skills that I am using now. So when I started my PhD, it was very fluid. So I just jumped straight into data analysis because I knew how to navigate through um, our servers, how to manipulate imaging data, and how to analyze uh, data. Um, so in, in my case, if I didn't do the research um, assist, assistantship, I think it would have been more challenging. But it really depends also, like if, for example, now most RAs are about uh, recruiting participants or they are about managing the, the daily life of, of a lab. But now if you think because of the COVID situation, doing an RA, it's a bit tricky because you can't recruit people now. You can't, I mean, you can't do scanning and stuff like that. So it's a bit more restrictive. Um, so unless you know that you want to do a PhD in a specific field or area, then maybe doing um, a, a research assistantship in that same area would be useful. Otherwise, uh, I think just applying for a PhD would be good because as Michael and Fran said, you will learn all these skills um, into the first. Okay, that's really reassuring to, to know. Um, and so lastly, how would you recommend that students actually go about learning these technical skills like data analysis and programming if you don't, uh, like Fran, you said that you learned uh, most of it actually sort of doing your PhD already. Um, so how were you able to do that? 
Google. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but no, Google was like a big one. Um, go to workshops, talk to people, you know, create like good connections. Uh, don't be afraid of us to your supervisor to, you know, uh, attend this conference or this workshop or anything that like could help you. Um, and then, yeah, you know, just like, I think support, like support from other people, they went through the same thing or probably they used the same method could help as well. Um, so yeah, just also don't be afraid to ask or like, I think that, uh, most PhD students start their PhD thinking like, oh, I really need to have everything figured out myself, you know, so they never reach out for help. And I think there is like a big mistake because it's kind of like we do help from each other, even like, you know, with the methods, because definitely, even though like they didn't work on aging, but they work on schizophrenia, if they use the same methods, like you could definitely apply on anything. So yeah, I think like these two things, just attend, you know, conferences, workshops, or also uh, talk to people. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Um, it's you just kind of have to throw yourself into it, really. Whatever, whatever basis you come from. Like I, I came from a strong basis that was quite relevant to my field. But a PhD, it's it's a whole other level. So you're kind of humbled by it off the bat, and I mean that in a good way. Um, so just that's where the supervise, the mentorship comes into play big time because when you have good mentors, they can you can just ask the most basic questions to them. And a lot of times, like with neuroimaging, diffusion-based, I don't come from a physics background. So I would just uh, sit with my one of my supervisors, Eric O'Hanlon, and ask him the most basic physics, physics questions ever. And if he was judgmental, I'd have an issue, but he was just completely fine with it, chill with it. And from that basis, then you slowly build up your understanding that you can begin to read these technical research papers on the topic. So you're starting from from zero, throwing yourself into it, kind of thinking you have it figured out, and then you realize you don't, going back at it again, and eventually you get somewhere with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like I'll I'll, I'll I'll support what Fran and Michael said. Um, I think well, I think going to conferences and attending workshops would probably help because there's so much resources online and it would be silly to not use them and it's free. So like Coursera has a lot of uh, data science uh, modules. Um, EDX has also uh, different courses. And, uh, and yeah, um, if you could ask your uh, fellow lab mates to help sometimes like if they have done similar analyses and if you're having some errors, and that's normal. Sometimes an error can take five minutes to solve. Sometimes it could take a day or days to solve, but that's completely fine. Um, so like a postdoc could help, or a um, your PhD friend could help, or even your your supervisor. So I think like what Michael said, having a good relationship with your mentors uh, is important. So that's how I would benefit the most if I'm learning program. Yeah. And also, uh, just to kind of add on to the point, with those online courses like Coursera or EDX, uh, they also have the option of getting the 
verified certificate. Um, and they can actually get quite expensive. So do you think, how, how important do you think having that verified certificate is, or is it okay to just sort of learn it and use the skills? And can I still say, I've done this course, I've done the assignments, but I don't have the money for the certificate. What do you think? Um, yeah, um, actually, they do offer financial aid for the same reason that you mentioned, um, because it can get you know, quite expensive if you do many courses, but they do have financial aids to offset these costs. Um, in terms of wanting to have a certificate or not, I think it depends. It's more if you're going for the industry, then maybe having the certificate might be more important. But in academia, as long as if it's listed on your CV, then I think it should be fine. Yeah, I agree with Jeeve. Um I mean, it's just to have the piece of paper basically but uh, otherwise you know the most important thing is that you know that skill and that you have it and once it's in your a cv once you can prove that you actually got the skill like i don't think that would you know would be like a big of an issue to have a certificate yeah yeah i'd have to agree i i've used a lot of coursera courses but a lot of times you find yourself just using specific chapters within the course so let's say 90% of the course isn't too relevant, but you just cherry pick what you need. And as for the certificate, yeah, if you're going into industry, I think that'd be quite important. But otherwise, yeah, I wouldn't be too fussed. Yeah, there's so many other things we can spend our money on. Okay, cool. So that's all the questions we have. Thank you so much for your advice. And we are actually going to continue our discussion in the next episode.